the following program may contain traces of irony, sarcasm, satire, parody, mockery, banter, caricature, and nuts. The opinions expressed are almost certainly not shared by self-appointed officious dictatorial wowsers. If you are dangerously irony deficient or allergic to mockery of the self-important and corrupt, then get a life. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. It's time to get a life, or at least to stand up for all life here on our Mother Earth with the Environmental As Anything show. Thank you for joining me today. It's a great pleasure to have your company and I'm uh, looking forward to a jam-packed show full of uh, news, interviews and all the analysis that we could collect uh, for you on our planetary uh, survival. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned. So much coming up uh, this week's show. The uh, We're doing a feature on fire. We've got uh, the local uh, coordinator of the Northern Rivers Regional Fire Service, Daniel Ainsworth. He's going to be coming in to check in about uh, our situation here in the local area with the current fires burning and uh, the possible prospects for the future for us uh, over this coming fire season. We've got a huge feature on the court actions which happened this Tuesday. Uh, we've got Annie Close from 2XX in Canberra. She's reported in on the Appia 5 case, uh, which was uh, inconclusively resolved, but had a, a big uh, support action outside that uh, court action. So uh, a great report there from the, uh, the nation's capital. Uh, on the, the opposition to the, uh, the fossil fuel industry. And uh, then, of course, more locally, in Grafton Local Court on Tuesday, uh, Ellis Forest Justice delayed as uh, Michael Jones, ecologist, uh, was arrested over a year ago for uh, protecting Ellis Forest from the, uh, from the death machines. And uh, I've got a report from outside uh, Grafton Local Court there. Then uh, later on, we've got, uh, well, a big feature from, uh, of, of the uh, Professor Penny Sackett, former Chief Scientist of Australia. She's a, an expert witness before the uh, inquiry into the climate change, the, uh, the net zero future bill of the ALPs putting before the parliament now. And on Monday this week, the hearings uh, were jam-packed with experts, but uh, Penny Sackett uh, stood out to me. There we have Sue Higginson from the Greens chairing that committee and a, a bipartisan group of MPs asking questions of Professor Sackett regarding a New South Wales climate targets. So, fascinating uh, presentation there. Would you mind giving me your full name and your position, please? Daniel Ainsworth, District Manager of the Rural Fire Service, Northern Rivers. Fantastic. Uh, all right, uh, Daniel. Um, I first of all wanted to start by saying you know, my condolences and respects. I understand that you've uh, just been to the funeral for one of the uh, heroic frontline defenders uh, who passed away whilst out there in action. Yeah, two weeks ago we had one of our firefighters uh, succumb to a medical episode on a hot uh, windy day and on the Bang Creek fire, on the way John Holmes, who's the senior deputy captain of the Malangany Brigade. So we've um, farewelled him today with uh, the community and the executive of the Royal Fire Service and the locals. Um, so we had a moving ceremony this morning, which was, uh, was quite good, quite nice. Right. Well, uh, respects to John and his passing and uh, condolences to his family and friends. Um, I'm sure he'll be missed. But... Um, it's been a, uh, there's a lot going on for you, I imagine, right now. There's a, a, quite a few fires uh, sparking up around the northern rivers and on the, the, the north coast of New South Wales more generally. Can you give us a bit of an update of what's happening here locally in Bundjalung country and what's, what's happening around us immediately? Yeah, in the last two weeks we've had several uh, fires uh, become significant fires in our hot, dry conditions that we've been experiencing around Horseshoe Creek, which is east of Kyogle. I've also had some down the coast there at Byron Bay, just north of Byron Bay, and also uh, northeast of uh, Benalbo, Old Benalbo. We've been dealing with fires. Uh, so those fires were brought under control and uh, are being um, patrolled at this stage. And in the meantime, we've also had uh, lightning um, start significant fires uh, up on the tablelands. Uh, and they're also affecting us in the tabulum area as well. So those fires continue to burn today. 
and uh, are quite large and uh, are burning some uh, thousands of hectares of country over between Tabulum and Tenerfield. Uh, today, uh, thankfully, there's some uh, light rain and there's also some rain forecast over the weekend, so it'll give the firefighters some reprieve, but uh, it won't be enough to put the fires out, so there'll still be lots of work to do in the coming days and weeks, not to mention the recovery process as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Daniel, would would you describe this as a normal conditions for this time of year? Is this what you've been you've come to expect as a for a usual, uh, you know, around this October, early November? It, it is normal for the northern rivers. Generally, our fire season starts around August, starts to dry off in July, then we'll start to get uh, fires in late August, September. Uh, but Come October, November, generally the season will change for us. So that hasn't happened for us yet. So it's and also the last two years we've had wet weather since those horrible floods and uh, and and uh, previous rain events as well. So it's not something that we've experienced for a couple of years, and it's also a bit longer than what we normally get as well. Mm-hmm. And and those rain events, I've heard people saying that, and I've, and I've observed myself out there in in the forests and uh, the places around. It, it certainly built up a a load of fuel in the understory of uh, of the forests, hasn't it? It has. So the difference between now and, the, and our previous significant fire seasons of 2019 is we, we were coming out of a two or three year century drought, but now we've got all this growth that's there as well. So during the drought, that growth had died off. However, now with two years of rain uh, and good growing conditions, we have significant grass growth in the forest as well as the uh, middle uh, forest uh, levels as well, forest fuel loads as well. Mm. So there's different fuels and that, that uh, extends the fires continue to burn and it also has that fuel loading in the grassland as well. So fires move three times faster in the open grassland. So it's something that we've got to um, adjust to and get used to fighting grass fires as well in this, in this area. Mm, mm. Well, it, it's not just this area, of course, that's uh, that's on fire. Uh, there's been uh, Reuters is reporting that uh, wildfires plaguing the people of California, um, and uh, that you know two two and a half thousand acres uh, of, uh, of of forest fires uh, were uh, have prompted evacuation orders for more than four thousand people, and then of course more close to home uh, in Queensland. Uh, you know, you know, residents in three areas in northern Queensland uh, were ordered to evacuate their homes as bushfires burned out of control, and uh, you know, firefighters from Australia and New Zealand have been battling those blazes. Uh, do you see this as a uh, a presage, a, a possible, uh, you know, foretelling of what might happen here if uh, you, you know if things go badly for us? Yeah, in general, that's. In history, that basically says this: if they have a busy season during their summer in in the in the states, it generally pretenses us to have a a long season as well. Our fire season will will move south, so Queensland currently move, having those these conditions until the, it starts getting those monsoonal conditions, bringing the moisture down. Mm. Uh, that season will will be extended for Queensland, and that's going to continue for us. And then as summer comes, that season will then move south. Uh, down down south uh, towards Sydney and then through to the south coast. Mm. Uh, and there, there are times when we, we have fires as well at the same time as the south coast. So uh, whether that season moves on from us or whether we have the season at the same time, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see what the end result is for us. Yes. Um, so uh, there's no crystal balls, obviously, but uh, there is the possibility that we might be up for a, a fire season comparable to the 2019-20 uh, black summer. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. So we're not sure whether it's going to be the same as 2019 because that, that led up to a, a pre-deep drought, a century drought, a one in 100 year drought. Um, so this season is different. Uh, so it, it will be significant. It'd be, it's just whether it seems to be whether it's going to be similar to uh, a lot of the firefighters are describing the fire behaviour we're experiencing now similar to that to what they'd experienced in 2019 which is mm. something that's a bit surprising because we're not in drought conditions like then but we are in, in this northern New South Wales uh, is um, partly severely drought affected so mm. how the season rolls out will be interesting uh, to follow uh, but it's, it's certainly not going to be uh, a quiet a quiet season anyway no people should be prepared uh, and get them get themselves that their fire plans active and and be on the be on alert for uh, for, for for responding to uh, the, uh, the the bureau and the and the meteorology 
uh, the, gotcha. the, the RFS and the Bureau. I should say. Have your, have your app in place. Make sure you've got your hazards near me up ready to go and have your alert zone set up so it goes off when something happens in your area. Make sure you've got your bushfire survival plan and that you've spoken to your family about the bushfire survival plan so you know what you're going to do and the people that live with you know, know it's going to happen because uh, these things happen very quickly and you want to be able to uh, quickly know, know what decisions you're going to make at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 Daniel, I was also I th- thought it, it would be uh, worth considering uh, the, these big fires that are going on, obviously in Queensland, and uh, you know as you said, potentially across the whole state. But right now in Queensland, they're drawing down a lot of resources, and and even I imagine there'd be a knock-on effect from the the big fires in the US going on if if they have fires going on simultaneously with us. Is this going to have implications for us here in terms of personnel and equipment and other resources that we need to be able to defend our, uh, you know, uh, landscape and uh, and and property? We're pretty fortunate across Australia. We have a sharing arrangement with all the states across Australia, where we share aircraft and resources and and people. So with our aircraft, whilst it might be a lot of aircraft being used in Queensland, we can draw down on states that aren't experiencing fires or, or other contracts. Along with the New South Wales government also has their own fleet of uh, helicopters and, and uh, firefighting, uh, area firefighting capacities as well. Uh, and as in relation to the people, we've, we can draw uh, crews in from all across the state like we are now. There's crews coming in from south of uh, New South Wales to help in the northern New South Wales. And then uh, then we can also enact those sharing arrangements. We've, we've had our own firefighters working in the Northern Territory uh, in the last month or so, helping them out with their fires. So we're, we're pretty lucky there where we've got a good sharing arrangement from all the states across Australia. Uh, and you, you see we've got New Zealand firefighters coming to help the Queenslanders as well. So that's something we'll pick up out of the 2019 fire season is um, being able to interact uh, together a lot easier than we would in the past. Well, that sounds uh, very positive. Let's hope that it uh, doesn't overwhelm the resources we have and uh, I hope that you've been given the proper uh, support from the state and federal governments to be able to you know, fight that important fight. Uh, Damien, look, thank, uh, Daniel, sorry, Daniel, thank you very much for your time today. Um, look, really appreciate all the work that you're doing out there. Please stay safe. Thank you very much for the time and uh, yeah, we can chat again in the future. Appreciate the time. In 2019, Ellis State Forest provided a vital fire refuge for threatened species during the fires. But the Forestry Corporation New South Wales went ahead and logged these critical habitat forests in 2022, despite a concerted campaign by the community to halt the destruction, save species and report logging breaches to the EPA. The Ellis and Clouds Creek State Forests protect water flows into the Nimboida River catchment. In 2023, with El Nino drought conditions worsening, the Clarence LGA needs to protect intact forest ecosystems for water security and to maintain fire refuge for koalas, greater gliders and many other threatened species living in the Blix and Nemboida river catchments. This week, Clarence Valley Council has advised that the Clarence Regional Water Supply is at risk of tighter water restrictions due to low flows in the Nimboida River and supply coming from the Shannon Creek Dam catchments, which have this week been impacted by fire. With ongoing logging of catchment forests by Forest Corps New South Wales approved by the EPA, the risk of extreme fire damage to our forested water catchments has increased. At the same time, at Grafton Magistrates Court, Ellis State Forest protector and ecologist Michael Jones had his day in court put off again after numerous delays over a year of waiting. He calls on the New South Wales Labor government to end native forest logging and for the New South Wales EPA to start doing its job and act to protect our environment. Okay, so could I get your name and uh, what are you doing here today, please? Uh, my name's Michael Jones, I'm an ecologist. Um, today I face court for trying to stop industrial logging in Ellis State Forest. Um, other ecologists and other conservationists have faced court for a similar reason. The knitting nanners have faced court. High school students have faced the law because they've been trying to stop logging. 
We are not the criminals. Forestry Corporation is the criminal organisation and the Binns government is culpable. They promised us a great Kuala National Park and they haven't delivered. So, you uh, were in Ellis State Forest, locked on to some of the death machines. I've seen video of you. When was that and why? What's so special about Ellis State Forest? Uh, in Ellis State Forest, it was a beautiful forest, blue gum forest, really biodiverse. Uh, there was a pocket of forest that hadn't been burnt, you know, an area where uh, a lot of the forests have been destroyed in the 2019-25s. So it was an island of biodiversity, very important. Mark Graham, the ecologist, had uh, surveyed the area, found quite a few threatened species under the Biodiversity Conservation Act. So an incredibly important area to save, and unfortunately it was destroyed. So how long ago was that? That was uh, last year, August. Right. Yep. So, uh, yeah, over a year ago, yep. and you've been waiting since then uh, to, uh, to have your day in court. That's what, correct. What have you been charged with? Um, I've been charged with uh, failing to leave when requested by officers, and also um, basically stopping the loggers from working. And uh, what's, uh, what, what do you hope to have happen out, out of all of this? What do, what do you, you think was, is, it would be a just outcome to come out of the courts? I'm here because I want to highlight the fact that the EPA, Environmental Protection Authority, is not stopping Forestry Court from uh, destroying our native forests. They're a toothless organisation and Forestry Court is a serial offender. It's constantly breaking the rules and getting fined small amounts, and who pays for the fines? We do. The taxpayers pay for forestry's indiscretions. So, you know, couldn't you have done something else about it? Why should you be breaking the law? Um, it was the last resort. You know, like, uh, I knew the forest was going to be destroyed. There was no stop work order. There was only one thing I could do, and that was direct action, and that's why I logged, uh, locked on to the forest harvester. And uh, what do you hope other people will do when they see what's happening here today? Well, we've just got to keep on lobbying the politicians. We've got to protect, we've got to stop the logging in native forests. And I'm hoping that people will uh, go to the media, lob their local politician, lobby their local politician, and take action, uh, not necessarily direct action, but I'm just hoping we can save our forests. Well, thank you, Michael. Jeremy? Can I just throw, any idea what sort of sentence you could potentially be facing? Um, I'm not terribly worried. The um, person who locked on the day before me got a good behaviour bond, so I'm, I'm not terribly worried about the case. Yeah. And one of the offences that you're charged with, I'm told, is quite unusual. Hiding tools or something? Talk to, yeah. me, talk to me about that. I can't quite remember the name of the offence. It's, it's hiding tools and Preventing, preventing them to work basically, and it's uh, the first time they've thrown such an offence at a uh, forest campaigner. Yes. So, it'll be interesting to see what the outcome is. Michael Jones solicitor Eddie Lloyd spoke up for her client outside the Grafton local court after his case was adjourned again. Hi, my name's Eddie Lloyd. Uh, I'm a lawyer representing Michael Jones and we're here at Grafton uh, Courthouse uh, the 31st of October where the hearing was set for him locking onto a harvest uh, in Ellis State Forest on the 30th of August last year. So it's been going on a long time and unfortunately the court didn't have enough time to hear the matter today so we're going to be back again but thankfully it's going to be before the end of the year on the 19th of December we're going to be back back here and no doubt it'll be a uh, climate breaking uh, temperature um, so if you are going to come along bring your umbrellas bring your placards bring your songs bring your heart bring your support for Michael um, and let's uh, put this to an end and get some justice for him and for our forests. Mid-North Coast ecologist Mark Graham spoke eloquently outside the Grafton Court for the protection of Ellis State Forest and an end to native forest logging. And as he called for the New South Wales government and its Environment Protection Agency to start to act in the public interest and for our forest ecologies.
My name's Mark Graham. I run the Ballinger Nature Company. I have a network of private conservation areas on the Dorigo Plateau, including being a neighbour to Clouds Creek and Ellis State Forest. I was engaged by the State Government Bushfire Local Environment Recovery Fund to assess the values of the Western Dorigo Plateau, including Ellis State Forest. During the course of that work, it became apparent that Ellis State Forest was one of the main refuges uh, in the entire landscape for the greater glider, the yellow-bellied glider, the koala, and the glossy black cockatoo. The Forestry Corporation then engaged in illegal old-growth logging operations, which destroyed the habitat of those species. We were outraged and horrified by that. We undertook a series of non-violent direct actions to protect and defend those forests. Michael Jones was arrested in one of those actions, and we've been here today to support him uh, in seeking justice for his actions to protect and defend these globally significant forests that are a critical part of the Great Koala National Park. We need our forests protected immediately to prevent escalating extinctions and to address the climate crisis. Further to that, those areas, Ellis State Forest and the adjoining Clouds Creek, provide drinking water to everybody on the coast between Yamba and Sawtell. Those forests are critical for providing base flow to the Coffs Coast, Coffs Clarence regional water supply. The logging of these forests is directly impacting upon our water security. And earlier this year, the water became so putrid from the Forestry Corporation's logging operations that the people of Grafton went on to quite high level water restrictions. And they're now on the line for water filtration infrastructure that will cost many tens of millions of dollars. So that sounds like an, an issue that the EPA should be taking care of. Why, uh, why is it necessary for people to be arrested uh, when it's the EPA's job to look after these issues? So we ordered it. The illegal old growth logging operations at Ellis State Forest, we found tens of breaches in a fairly brief period of time, including the illegal logging of giant trees, damage to marked up habitat trees, marked up koala habitat trees, the destruction of the critically endangered scrub turpentine, reported, gathered that evidence forensically, reported it to the regulators at the EPA, and they did their standard cover-up job and said, no crimes to be seen here. That was reported to Steve Orr, their manager of regulatory services. He sent me a letter saying that there were no crimes. We measured 151 centimetre diameter at 30 centimetres above ground height, brush box, multiple centuries old. Those dimensions were independently validated and verified by a tree health expert, an independent who wrote a report. That was given to the EPA and they went there and measured that tree and the best that they could get was 137 centimetres. Now, we can't see how their measurements were so different to ours. And the critical threshold is trees over 140 centimetres. We could not get a dimension below 150 centimetres. So the EPA, we'd learnt via the Auditor General's report that they don't have tape measures, for example. Did they not have their tape measures that day? What is going on, EPA? What is going on, Steve Orr? What is going on, Tony Chappell? Because every time we report breaches to you, you cover them up and say that there are no crimes, despite those breaches being forensically reported, photographed, videoed and mapped using the best possible evidence-gathering techniques. That was a report from the Grafton Magistrates Court from last Tuesday where forest protector Michael Jones was again denied a, a just outcome as his case was again adjourned until the 19th of December. I'm at the ACT Magistrates Court in Canberra where high-profile lawyer and former ACT Attorney-General Bernard Caleri is representing five older Canberrans in a David versus Goliath case. On 27th of February this year, the defendants blockaded the fossil fuel industry mouthpiece, the Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Association, known as APIA, to highlight the need for the federal government to take much stronger action on climate breakdown. They were arrested for barricading the front doors of APIA's headquarters in Canberra with lifeboat and dropping banners from the balcony that read we're drowning in fossil fuels and you can't offset a climate crisis. 
Mr Caleri is calling a long list of prominent Australians as expert witnesses. The witnesses will include Admiral Chris Barry, retired AC, former Chief of the Defence Force, Professor John Hewson, AM, former Leader of the Opposition and now a Professor at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU, Professor Penny Sackett, former Chief Scientist of Australia, Professor Hilary Bambrick, Director of the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health at the ANU, and Ian Dunlop, former chair of the Australian Coal Association. Defendants include grandparents, a retired nurse, an environmental scientist, and a retired child psychologist. And they're all charged with unreasonable obstruction of the Australian oil and gas industry peak bodies business. There was a rally this morning in support of the defendants before the court case began and although the defendants were instructed not to speak, there were a number of speakers. Some of you here will remember that on the 27th of February this year, 40 people gathered at, outside the gas lobby headquarters and we were protesting about the fact that the gas lobby keeps pushing unsustainable gas onto our government. <clears throat> despite the fact that we're at a point in history when we must stop, especially any new gas and coal. That day, the 27th of Feb, was the anniversary of the Lismore floods. And as we stood there outside that building and we thought about the fact that those floods went 14.2 metres in Lismore, higher than ever recorded before. And when you looked up that building, and tried to guess where 14.2 metres was, it was about level four. So imagining that great big building with flood water up to its fourth level was pretty shocking. Those who are facing court today are all parents, five of them. Some of them are also grandparents and they have done this action because they have all spent at least a decade writing letters, talking to politicians, writing submissions, writing letters to the editor, standing beside the road with banners, doing every conceivable thing they could think of to try and have an impact to get our government and our business community to understand it's time to step away from fossil fuels. They finally reached the point of saying we have to do something more extreme to be noticed and they blocked the front doors of the gas lobby building was very brave and they knew they would be arrested, they knew they would be facing court. This was not um, an action done without a great deal of thought and consideration and they were prepared to face the consequences because they care about their kids and their grandkids. Emma Davidson, one of our wonderful MLAs in the ACT, aren't we lucky to have these fantastic politicians who actually understand the climate crisis? So, Emma, please come and... Thank you. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Emma. I'm one of your ACT Greens ministers in the ACT government. Um, now, we're here today in support of a very special group of people. I know these people. These are people who think deeply about what we're doing to our planet, about how we look after each other, how we look after this beautiful place that we live in and what that means for future generations. And I know that when they did what they did, they had put a lot of thought into it beforehand and that they were doing something that they truly believed in. Now, it's very important if we're going to have a healthy democracy that we have the right to protest. Um, this is something that uh, we have seen coming under threat uh, all around this country with harsher penalties for people who are engaged in protests, particularly around climate action and the need to do something about this climate emergency that we are in now. We absolutely need to take stronger action and we need to do it now. There is no time to waste. And I want to thank every single one of you today for turning up to support the people who are taking the risk uh, to, to do what they're doing to get it on the public record why this is so important, why we need to do something and do it now, uh, and why this is so important for future generations. Now, um, 
where any of us here who have been to any action over the years have uh, you know, felt how good it is to be part of a group who share the same values and who are taking action together. When our planet is under attack, what do we do? Stand up, fight back! When our planet is under attack, what do we do? Stand up, fight back! Thank you. Thank you so much, Emma. Let's give a big cheer for Emma. Hooray! Now, our next speaker is another local climate activist, Anne Gunn, and she's going to talk to us <laughs> um, about a range of issues that relate to this protest. So let's welcome Anne. Thank you everybody for coming along to support our friends Nick, Kate, Catherine, Anna and John who will be in front of the magistrate this morning on a charge of unreasonable obstruction. They face the possibility of stiff fines if convicted for their non-violent protest on our behalf. We know about the, the court case. This relates to their civil disobedience action in February when they blocked access to the Australian Petroleum Producers Offices for a couple of hours demanding no new coal and gas and a strong safeguard mechanism to cut emissions with no unlimited or dodgy offsets. They also drew, as Annie has said, they also drew attention Thanks. to the anniversary of the disaster in northern New South Wales where many people are still now without housing after the worst flooding ever seen. These people are feeling the direct and lasting impact from the climate crisis. You might think, as I do, that the protest was a very reasonable thing to do, in fact, a necessary thing to do. Civil disobedience is exhausting. It takes courage and fortitude. Thank you. It comes out of a resolute sense of solidarity with the rest of us and with the natural world, something entirely absent among the members of Appia. So we thank our friends for this. Now more than ever, we are relying on people who will stand up against powerful and greedy organisations and the governments who protect them. I don't need to tell anybody here about the climate emergency which makes it necessary to engage in civil disobedience. We don't know how many tipping points we have already passed. My list of what keeps me awake at night includes most recently these items. Europe and North America have had their dreadful summers with unprecedented flood and fires. We wait to find out how bad this summer will be for us in Australia. I was shocked by an Antarctic Division scientist's report that emperor penguins may be unable to survive much longer the warming seas and melting polar ice. And we are starting to learn to what extent scientists have been prevented from reporting their findings on climate-induced deterioration of the environment. The ABC has a recent article on the culture of suppression of ecologists and climate scientists at the Antarctic Division and the CSIRO and Bureau of Meteorology. It was Ross Garno, I think, who suggested that there is so much prevaricating, even in supposedly reputable reports, that it might be best to just take the most alarming and even outlying figures. They will probably turn out to be right. Last, we're seeing copycat legislation brought in across the country to restrict the rights of citizens to protest and to make legal penalties much scarier. The West Australian Police are riding high on this and appear to have got the ABC to provide them with the footage from their Disrupt Burrup Hub TV program. This is a serious scaling up of government reaction and a really worrying attack on freedom. It's a bad day for the ABC. So this court case sh shines a light on the destructive role of Appia and its gas-producing members who appear to have captured our government and who are wantonly pushing us further towards climate breakdown. The magistrate today will make a judgment, but we know who the climate criminals are. Thanks, Anne. Thank you, Anne. Ah. Anne, you said it perfectly. Who are the real criminals? We know who they are. Here, let me paint a picture because this recording hopefully will go far and wide. It's freezing cold, there's a gale blowing. We've got our banners here. SOS from the kids, says one of them. 
safeguard our kids future not polluted profits hey Appia we're drowning in fossil fuels and oil and gas lobby cooking the planet whoa safeguard our climate not polluted profits so we've got all the messages here environment crisis demands action so oh stop fossil fuel subsidies and this is an important piece of data $22,000 per minute of our taxes going to prop up this dirty industry that is damaging the planet and threatening everyone's lives. Since the action on the 27th of February, Appia has changed its name and moved location. Next up on Environmental as Anything, we'll be listening to the proceedings of the inquiry into the Climate Change Net Zero Future Bill from 2023. That is last Monday, the 30th of October in Parliament House, Sydney. This inquiry was chaired by Sue Higginson from the Greens and its deputy chair was John Ruddock of the Liberal Democratic Party. You'll hear John start off the questions uh, for the first witness that we'll be hearing. Uh, of course, the witness for this proceedings that we'll be, uh, be listening to is Professor Penny Sackett, Distinguished Honorary Professor, ANU Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions and former Chief Scientist of Australia. We'll also be hearing during the proceedings a, uh, a questions from Jackie Munro from the Liberal Party and Peter Primrose from the ALP. These are, of course, bipartisan parliamentary uh, committee proceedings and uh, extremely informative regarding the, uh, the risks to our climate from this zero future bill proposed by the ALP government here in New South Wales. My name is Penny Sackett and I'm a distinguished honorary professor at the ANU Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions and a previous chief scientist for Australia. I solemnly, sincerely and truly declare and affirm that the evidence now about to be given by me shall be the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Thank you, Professor Sackett. Now, would you like to start by making an opening statement? Yes, I would. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure if you can see me. No, we actually don't have um, your vision there. Oh, okay. I'm not sure why that's the case, but um, uh, my voice is probably the most important part of the experience. So um, let me give my opening remark. Um, as follows, I want to first thank you for this opportunity to speak to you in relation to the New South Wales Climate Change Bill 2023. My written submission provides details about my work over the past decade on greenhouse gases, the current climate disruption and its impacts, particularly those in Australia. I applaud the enshrining of greenhouse gas emission targets into New South Wales law. Doing so enables binding climate legislation and policies to be enacted and pursued by this and subsequent governments and sends a clear signal to industry, investment agents and the populace of New South Wales, indeed of the whole world, that New South Wales is serious about climate action. I also commend the establishment of the independent new uh, net zero commission the breadth of its remit, which includes the ability to provide reports, information, advice, and recommendations on its own initiative, and the public nature of its reports, and the response to those reports by the government. I also note the positive indication that the Commission will be able to advise on emission budgets and interim targets for New South Wales. However, the bill could be strengthened in a number of ways. I have made seven specific re recommendations in my written submission, some of which relate to the streamlining of the guiding principles of the bill and the appointment of commissioners. But this morning, I would like to focus on recommendations that would strengthen the bill in its direct response to reducing greenhouse gas emissions caused by activities in and sanctioned by New South Wales. 
These emissions cause significant harm to the people and environment of New South Wales. Furthermore, they do so against the background of a climate crisis that threatens to push the Earth system beyond several essentially irreversible tipping points, potentially as soon as a decade from now, when global heating will surpass 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial times on our current trajectory. The, cross, the consequences of crossing such tipping points would be catastrophic and remove much of our ability to slow the acceleration of further heating. And given this, I recommend that the 2030 emissions reduction target be increased from the current 50% reduction on 2005 levels that the net zero emission target be brought forward in time from the current 2050, that New South Wales commitment to a 70% reduction target by 2035 be enshrined in this bill, that one clause of the bill be removed, that being clause 9.3 of the bill, which restricts regulations from setting an interim target to reduce net greenhouse gas emissions before 2050. And finally, that the bill be amended to place a moratorium on new coal mines, coal mine extensions, and the exploration or exploitation of new gas fields in New South Wales, as is recommended by the International Energy Agency in its net zero by 2050 roadmap for the global energy sector. I'm happy to take questions from the committee on these points um, and to expand upon the magnitude and the urgency of the climate crisis in Australia, including in New South Wales. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor. The committee will have a few questions and we'll just um, circle around the members. We might start with Mr. Ruddock because he why don't we do that? He has some very very deep questions about the actual <clears throat> science, Professor. So we might start with that if that's okay with you. Thank you, Chair. Uh, Professor Sackett, so um, you know you did just say that you think that uh, if we don't make drastic changes in the next ten years, that uh, the damage will be irreversible. So this is an apocalyptic forecast. Do you agree it will be fabulous if you are wrong? Of course it'd be fabulous if I'm wrong, but okay, I'm not. Okay. My opinion is based on not just my own work, but the work of thousands and thousands of scientists around the world. It is considered and concluded scientific opinion that um, climate change is um, on a very, very dangerous track. We don't know precisely where these tipping points may lie in temperature, but the best scientific evidence is that many of them lie between 1.5 and 2 degrees of warming. It is also considered an concluded scientific opinion that we will reach 1.5 degrees um, in fact, probably sooner than was actually thought uh, a decade ago. It's now thought that that warming, baseline warming um, temperature globally will be met by 2035 or sooner. Well, other people have given the 10-year forecasts. Al Gore did it in uh, 2007 and it didn't come true. Now, uh, the, the Earth's had, had an atmosphere for three, four billion years. It is true that the temperature variability of the atmosphere is in constant change and that has helped spur our evolution. Do we agree with that statement? The uh, evolution of the, the atmosphere has been in uh, constant change, but nothing of this magnitude and speed in, the, in um, several hundreds of thousands of years. Nothing even comparable to this rapid change um, that we're seeing now, which is a change that is about one quarter of that change, but in the opposite direction, um, that would throw, for example, the Earth into an ice age. 1.5 degrees is not a minor change for the average temperature of the Earth. It's actually a huge change. I would think 1.2 degrees. I think that's the upper, upper range of the estimates, but let's say you're right. 1.2 degrees in 200 years, it's quite possible that that is simply within natural variability uh, uh, limits. I mean, if there were no humans on this planet in the last 200 years, it's quite possible exactly the same thing would have happened, isn't it? No, it's not. Okay. Uh, we know about the natural variability going back hundreds and thousands of years. And that natural variability long before the Industrial Revolution was nothing like 
an increase of, you're right, 1.2 degrees now, but rapidly approaching 1.5. Nothing like 1.2 degrees Celsius in, um, frankly, most most of that has occurred in the last 100 years, but I'll give you 200. Uh, Nothing even comparable. We know that because we have measured the variability over for for hundreds and thousands of years. So no, this is completely outside um, the variability in terms of its speed and would not have happened if um, humans were not on the earth and um, generating greenhouse gases to place them into the atmosphere. Okay, my last point is you said that uh, many coastal areas in Australia will experience what are now considered once in 100 years extreme sea level events at least once a year by 2000 and 2100. So we were told 30, 40 years ago that we were were imminently going to be facing rising oceans. Um, I don't think that's happened. Other people have been at the committee and claimed they have. I am pleased to see that you're saying that this is something that will happen, but are you in agreement that we have not yet seen uh, oceans rising as was predicted? No, I don't agree with that point. Uh, Oceans have risen. Um, uh, The evidence is very clear on that. It's also clear, um, and this is rather recent uh, science, um, that that rate of um, increase in the the ocean is is now accelerating. That is, it's rising faster and faster. So um, the oceans have already risen and they will definitely rise further. Um, How much further lies currently under our um, under our control partially by uh, how much we limit greenhouse gases okay well how much has how, how much have oceans risen in the last hundred years um, I will now be I'm talking now about um, an average and I would like to take this on notice if I could so I can get you um, uh, you know a, a precise answer thank you so if I'd like to, I would, if you'd allow me, I'd like to take that um, on notice and I will return that answer very quickly to the committee. I mean, it might, it might, have, gone you, up, it might have gone up a centimetre or two, but it's not having any impact. I mean, people, uh, demand for real estate on coastal properties continues to soar. So I don't think it's actually having any real world impact. I mean, a one or two centimetre rise is going to be negligible for, for all communities. Um, I would. I, it is more than that, and I would disagree that it's not having an impact. There are many companies, for example, that are already working, um, quite worried about the infrastructure that they have built next to coast. There are already airports considering um, how this might affect their runways and so forth. So um, I, I would not agree that it has not had any impact. I'm not a real estate specialist, I admit. <laughs> Thank you, Professor. We're very grateful that you would take that on notice for Mr. Ruddock. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, Professor, could I just ask you, to, uh, could I begin, could you please explain some of the consequences that you can foresee through your expert lens on agriculture, water, the communities and the environment, if we are actually, um, if our target is net zero by 2050? Okay, so before I do that, I want to talk just a little bit about what net zero by 2050 means and what it doesn't mean. What's actually important for um, what the leveling point of global heating eventually will be is not so much when we reach net zero, although that is an important factor, but the most important factor is how much carbon we put into the air and methane, uh, those two particularly, into the air um, before we reach 2050. So what I'm trying to say is that there are many different ways to get to zero by 2050. Some of them put a lot of greenhouse gases into the air and some of them put less. And so one of the reasons why it is very important to set near term like 2030 targets and interim targets like 2035 and after is to make sure that that trajectory is a trajectory that um, does not place 
so much greenhouse gas into the atmosphere that in fact, although we might reach net zero by 2050, we have completely blown our chances, for example, of having um, an earth that has warmed by less than two degrees. So um, I I want to start with that caveat, okay? that um, net zero by 2050 is just one piece of the puzzle and arguably not even the most important one. Um, but some things that we can expect, which I've, I've um, put into my report, uh, we can expect that um, peak heat waves, and, and by the way, this is just at 1.5 degrees of global heating, okay? So, so these are things that we are highly, highly likely to see peak waves occurring um, every less than every three years that used to occur every 30 years. Um, uh, Mr. Reg mentioned many coastal areas in, in, in Australia will experience what are now considered uh, extreme sea level events that only would have happened once every 100 years, now happening every year by 2100. Uh, I'm sure we can't all forget um, the summer of 2019, 2020 that won't be a hot summer that'll be an average summer and most concerning for me is the likelihood of crossing some of earth's tipping points now in terms of agriculture um especially in new south wales and the murley darn basin um a real concern there about um decreased levels of water for agriculture um and the higher the eventual global warming uh, the um, the more severe droughts um, will certainly be. Um, I have, let me just, you asked about, um, yes, and, and um, in fact, I had a look at the IPCC report, they had a special report on um, Australia and its region. And if I could quote from, from that report, um, noting that the Murray-Darling Basin supports agriculture that's worth 24 billion a year and 2.6 million people in diverse rural communities. Um, Climate change is projected, as I said, to substantially reduce water resources in the Murray-Darling Basin um, with uh, a median projection of uh, 20% decline. And by the way, um, it's already declined. So this is on top of the current decline in average runoff um, if we reach something like 2.2 degrees of um, average global warming. Um, and certainly the climate risks will are projected to exacerbate existing vulnerabilities and social inequalities, the inequalities that already exist between generations, between indigenous and non-indigenous peoples, between rural and ur- urban areas, between those with high incomes and high health status and those without, um, climate change will make all of those things even worse than they currently are. And the report concluded that reducing those risks would require significant and rapid emission reductions to keep global warming in the range of 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius. And as a reminder, again, we will reach 1.5 by somewhere between 2030 and 2035. You are tuned in to Environmental As Anything and you are listening to Professor Penny Sackett, former Chief Scientist of Australia, giving her expert testimony to the uh, inquiry into the Climate Change Net Zero Future Bill, which is currently before the New South Wales Parliament, proposed by the New South Wales ALP government. So just on that, Professor, you know, some people talk about runaway climate change, and I, I suspect that's what you're referring to there, that we will reach 1.5. Um, what is it, and so you're referring to tipping points. Um, what are those likely tipping points that we will see um, or that we need to avoid? Um, and just on that, what we've, we have heard evidence about the, the absolute fundamental importance of Um, front-loading the reduction in emissions. So if you could um, 
uh, give us some um, advice around the, the, the effectiveness or the desirability of interim targets? Yes, okay. First, let me say, um, uh, I don't want to leave the impression, it would be an incorrect impression to um, suggest that runaway climate change will happen at 1.5 degrees of warming. Mm -hmm. um, that is not what the science says. What the science says is that certain tipping points will likely occur, we can't say precisely where, but in the range between 1.5 and 2. And then, um, as currently thought, there will be others that then could tip between 2 and 4 degrees and so forth. Having said that, um, what we are now seeing uh, that we didn't see even just 10 years ago is that some of these tipping points are already um, starting to move. That is to say that Earth system, and I'll talk about which ones, um, Earth systems that are beginning to become altered in a direction that is leading them toward their tipping points, even ones that we thought would not actually cross tipping points until much higher temperatures. And so what are some of these? Well, I refer in my, in my written submission to a summary paper by um, Armstrong McKay et al. And in that paper, they talk about the um, tipping elements that are likely to tip somewhere below two degrees of warming. And those, those include um, abrupt permafrost thaw in northern forests. Now, why is that important? Because that permafrost thaw will release methane that has been sequestered for thousands and thousands of years, um, natural, you know, methane for sure, um, into the atmosphere and that will accelerate global warming. Um, it is generally um, con conceded, concluded, that low latitude coral reefs will simply be destroyed at two degrees of warming and perhaps uh, less than that. Um, the Greenland ice sheet is um, predicted to collapse. Why is that important? Because that will rapidly accelerate um, irreversibly and rapidly accelerate sea level rise. Um, so those are just, uh, and, it's, and I could say the same for the West Antarctic ice sheet um, here in the Southern Hemisphere as well. So those are some of the ones that we um, are most concerned about urgently, that is to say that are on current knowledge are likely um, to tip somewhere between 1.5 and 2 degrees. And that brings me to interim targets. Um, what we want to do is to prevent all of this from happening, and that means that we want to hold global warming as close to 1.5 as we can. And the longer we delay strong targets, the more greenhouse gas will enter the atmosphere and um, therefore ri uh, create a rise in global temperatures beyond 1.5 and put um, higher risk on the tipping elements that I've always already described as well as increasing the risk for things that I haven't um, mentioned like complete dieback of the Amazon uh, rainforest for example. So um, I guess some people would say, you know, go fast, go hard, um, make all the reduction that you can uh, as soon as possible, because that's what gives uh, humans and all the life on Earth um, the best chance to avoid these irreversible tipping points. Can I come in? Of course, if, Mr. Primrose. If, if I may, uh, thank you. Um, it, um, Peter Primrose, um, Professor. Um, can I just ask a question? I look um, through the bill and um, 14.2e um, talks about emission budgets for New South Wales and the fact that the, um, the Commission may provide advice and make recommendations to the Minister about and then one are emission budgets for New South Wales. Can you just tell us what emission budgets are and how important they are? Yes, so my interpretation of that would mean, would be to say that means greenhouse gas emissions. And the word budget is used um, scientifically here 
uh, so it's not a dollar amount. It's um, it's it's called a budget because uh, if we think of emitting greenhouse gases into the air as sort of spending um, those gases, then there's a certain amount of greenhouse gas that we can spend. Um, before we reach a certain level of global warming. And so the more you spend, the higher the warming, okay? Uh, you might have heard the word carbon budget. Mm -hmm. but this is basically the same concept as carbon budget, although the word emissions budget then also allows for, um, you know, budgets to be placed on other greenhouse gases, of which methane is very definitely an important one. Um, because on 20-year timescales, it has um, more than 80 times the effect, ton per ton, that CO2 does. Um, and given that we're talking about the possibility of crossing some of these tipping points in the ne next 10 to 15 years, um, what methane does on a 20-year timescale is very, very important. Okay. Thank you. Uh, just, just on that, um, Jackie Munro here. Thank you so much, Professor, for your submission. I found it very helpful, and particularly that your recommendations were so clear mm. and so clearly linked to the, the bill. Um, I did want to ask on that methane question, are there countries around the world or other jurisdictions that are putting limits on methane emissions? Um, yes, and again, um, if for a more fulsome answer, I'd like to take that on notice. Um, but I can tell you uh, here today that um, it, it's actually been several years ago, for example, when the state of California put limits on its methane emissions. And, you know, recognizing that the state of California um, has a, a much, much larger economy and a much, much larger population. I recognize it's not a nation, but in terms of the number of people and the industries and so forth that it had to consider, um, uh, you know, every bit as um, complex and uh, as Australia. Um, many other countries are taking a variety of actions on methane. I would have to actually take on notice um, how many of those actions include targets or targets in law. Um, Australia itself has signed up to the Global Methane Pledge, but that pledge doesn't actually um, require any of the many, many, many countries that have signed it, quite frankly, to individually do anything, right? It is simply a commitment to try and lower uh, methane emissions, uh, but there is no commitment that's required of any given nation. So um, I think that New South Wales uh, would be, you know, a leader, definitely, if it made specific methane targets as well. And I'm happy to take on notice to give you a more fulsome answer to that question. Thank you very much. The second question I wanted to ask was around, um, I guess, the kind of reality that we're facing. You say that the targets that are currently suggested to be enshrined in law, the 50% by 2030 and zero by 2050, that they're insufficient for consistency with holding heat, heating as close to 1.5 degrees Celsius as possible or withholding it to well below two degrees. So essentially you're saying we're, we're kind of writing checks that we can't cash here. Either we have to increase the targets and take action to those targets or we actually have to change the language around what this bill is likely to um, help achieve in terms of a, a, um, a heating target. Well, I think that's an interesting way to put it. Um, uh, yes, it is true that as written, the targets in this bill are not strong enough to ensure um, the outcome that I mentioned. I recognize that um, that these targets are said to be um, floors, not ceilings. Um, so I recognize that, but nevertheless, um, as you know, if they were, if these targets were just met, I mean, even if they were met, but just barely, 
Uh, we just got to net zero emissions by 2050, um, only reduced greenhouse gases by 50% and then continued on a trajectory of emitting at that level for quite some time before eventually dropping to zero, then yes, this bill would not have achieved um, protecting the environment and peoples of New South Wales as I feel its writers intended by reading the language. Mm. And that links to um, one of the next things that you pointed out, which a number of um, witnesses to the committee have mentioned, is that it's um, we essentially do need interim targets like the existing target that we have of 70% reduction by 2035 to be enshrined in this bill. Yes, I think that I think that's a very important point. Um, I I would like to see it enshrined in this bill. I know that New South Wales has stated that it does have that ambition. It 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 appears in many government documents. Um, so I have no reason to doubt uh, that that is a real ambition on commitment. Although we, so, I will say, we have heard from um, some legal experts that the introduction of this bill into legislation would actually supersede the existing regulation due to that clause that you've also pointed out which restricts regulation from setting essentially interim targets or anything below zero by 2050. I see. Well, that would be a pity. Mm. Uh, I, would, uh, I would say that one of my recommendations that stands alone from all the others, you know, irrespective of whether any of the other recommendations are taken on board, is to remove that clause. I feel personally that it, um, I, I don't see a positive reason for that clause. Um, now, the bill does say that um, the commission could advise on interim targets. And so it, you know, it may be that one path forward would be for the commission to to do so and for the government to take that on board and then at that point enshrine it in law or amend this bill should it pass. Um, but of course that level of certainty that that approach might be taken is, is not spelled out in the bill as written. Mm. Thank you so much and, and thanks again for your submission. It's very, very helpful. You have just been listening to the expert testimony of Professor Penny Sackett to the inquiry into the climate change net zero future bill held last Monday, the 30th of October in Parliament House, Sydney. Uh, you heard from members of that uh, inquiry. Uh, the, the last question you heard was from Jackie Munro from the Liberal Party. Prior to that, you heard Peter Pimrose from the ALP. And before that, we heard from both Sue Higginson from the Greens and John Ruddock from the Liberal Democratic Party asking questions of Professor Sackett. Thanks for tuning in to Environmental As Anything. That is the end for us today here on Environmental As Anything. Please, uh, you know, do tune in. Uh, check out our Facebook page and like it and share it. Uh, check out our podcast. Uh, go on, uh, go right now and and uh, look in your favourite search engine uh, to, uh, to to Google or wherever it might be, and uh, check out Environmental As Anything podcast, and you will find a a range of high quality interviews there that you can not just listen to but also subscribe to and share. So please do that. And uh, until we meet again, uh, please be kind to yourself, be gentle with each other, and remember. We are all in this together.